Well, good morning, church. Uh, I invite you to open up to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Preschoolers, you are dismissed. And while you are turning to Exodus 20, verse 13, uh, let me ask you this. Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? This is what God asked Cain after his offering was not accepted. And it's the same question I want to ask you this morning. Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? Adam and Eve, the first two human beings created by God, they disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden. They sought the knowledge of good and evil apart from God and his ways. And as a result, sin entered into the world and has infected the entire human race. And Satan, sin, and death have been enemies of humanity ever since. But God promised Adam and Eve that one of their offspring would come into the world and would crush the serpent's head. He promised that there would be one who would come and conquer the sin that they allowed to enter into the world. And so Adam and Eve have a son and they name him Cain. And maybe he will be the one that's going to conquer sin. And when God sees that Cain has become angry, he warns him. And he says, hey, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. But sadly, what do we see happen? In Cain, we see what sinful anger in the heart is capable of. Cain becomes enslaved to his anger. He allows his anger to rule him and control him. And in his anger, he rises up and he murders his brother Abel. The first of many murders to be committed in God's world. And when God confronts him and asks him where Abel is, he shows no signs of remorse. And he says infamously the line, am I my brother's keeper? Dear church, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen this morning? We've arrived at the sixth good word from our Father in our study of the Ten Commandments, which is a, it's a very short command in English. It's four words, you shall not murder. But in the Hebrew, it's actually even shorter. It's two words, literally translated, no murder. No murder. And I imagine that many of you, as we've been going through these commandments each week, the Spirit has brought new conviction of your sin and shown you just how much sin still does remain in your heart. And now as we come to the commandment about murder, you maybe are thinking, okay, finally we have come to a commandment that I've kept. Maybe some of you are hoping for that this morning. And if that's you, unfortunately, I have some bad news for you. Now, I have good news for you as well, and the good news is even better than you thought, but I do have some bad news. So church, do you want the bad news first or the good news? Bad? 
Okay, bad. I don't know why I asked. I'm going to give you the bad news first anyway, but I just wanted to make sure we were on the same page. So the bad news is that the anger that is in your heart is just as capable of murder as Cain's anger was. And even if you've never murdered someone with your hands, you have murdered people in your hearts. And so that's the bad news. That's what's going on in our hearts this morning. That's what, that's what this command reveals in our hearts. But we also see in this command, we also see the heart of our Father. And that's very good news. It's going to lead us to even the best news in the world because in this command, we see that our God, our good Father, He is a God who values and loves life, especially human life. Our God values and loves life, especially human life. And so my prayer for us this morning is that Christ would come and conquer our angry hearts this morning so that the love of Christ would control us, not our anger. So let's pray. Let's ask for his help. Father, we do ask for your help this morning. Help me be faithful to proclaim your word and your truth. And help us, Lord, as we hear it. May we receive it and really listen to it and help us believe it. Father, we ask that you would help us to get rid of the anger and the evil that still dwells in our hearts so that we may humbly accept the word that you, God, have planted into our hearts, for we believe it has the power to save our souls. So may we experience that this morning. May you conquer the anger that is in our hearts. May we no longer be enslaved to it. May it be no longer what controls us. And may we receive and enjoy the love of Christ. And so, Jesus, we look to you this morning, for you have the words of eternal life. And it's in your name we pray this. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, so what we need to see first in this command is that God loves and values life especially human life. He tells us in Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder, or like I said, most literally, no murder. Now, if you have a KJV, or if you first heard this command in the King James Version, this might be a little confusing for you, because the KJV translates, translates this command as you shall not kill. But there are many words in the Hebrew language that mean to kill, and the word that is used here is distinct from all those others, and therefore our English word murder really does best explain what God is prohibiting here. Because when this word is used throughout the Old Testament, it is always in reference to one human being unlawfully taking another human being's life. That's what this word to murder means. It's one human being unlawfully taking another human being's life. This is never a word that is used when God or angels kill someone. Uh, this is never a word that is used when people kill an animal 
or any sort of hunting is involved. This is never a word that is used in war, as sometimes wars are just and necessary to defend life. This is never a word that is used when someone in self-defense kills someone. This is never a word that is used when someone after a trial is found guilty of a crime deserving of the death penalty and is executed. And so this is not God prohibiting killing of any kind. This is God commanding human beings to not unlawfully take another human being's life. Because our God loves and values life especially human life, and we should as well. And it is actually because he values life so much that he allows things like just war and self-defense and capital punishment in his law. It is because he values human life so much that he's not indifferent to death and he wants life to be protected. In God's instructions to Noah after the flood, he says in Genesis 9, Verse 6, he says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. The reason that there is such serious punishment should be given to people that murder people is because God made man in his own image. And it is that truth that sets human beings apart from the rest of animal and plant life. Now, God loves and values all of his creation, and we should be good stewards of all of his creation, but he especially values human life because we are made in his image. And what that means, this is a phrase we use a lot in church, but what that means is that we are distinct from animal and plant life, We have been made more like God than anything else in all creation. And we were made to reflect his nature and character and to be his representative rulers in his world. To be made in the image of God means that we were made to reflect his nature and character and to be his representative rulers in his world. And that is a unique, distinct thing for human beings. We are created in his own image. And therefore, we are to value what he values, and he values life. We are to primarily be about breathing life into his world like God does, not unlawfully taking life from this world. You shall not murder, our good father says. He says, no murder. So what are some of the ways that we are not valuing human life like God does? What are some of the ways that we are murdering one another? We use different terms for the ways that we murder one another so that we can feel better about it. We use terms like abortion and euthanasia, suicide. But both science and the Bible agree that human life starts at conception. And to end another human life in the womb is absolutely contrary to the will of God. It breaks God's heart, it breaks something in us, and it is playing into the schemes of the enemy who hates human life and wants to kill as much human life as he can. You see, the enemy of our souls hates God, but he can't strike down God, and so he's going to instead try to strike down all the people that look like God, his image bearers. He hates human life. 
The enemy of our souls wants to see human life taken as much as possible. Now, let me say this to to those of you, if, if you've had an abortion or if you've encouraged someone to have an abortion or if you have participated in the procedure, as many medical people have, listen, this is not the unforgivable sin. Go to God, confess this to God, and receive the forgiveness from God that you need. But see the seriousness of this sin and don't take it lightly. Call it what it is. And you will likely, you'll need to confess this to a trusted brother or sister who can help you heal from this. You might need some regular counseling to help you apply God's grace to your life in this area and to be freed from the guilt and shame of this past sin in your life. But church, listen, there is grace for you in Christ, even in this even in the ways that we have taken life in this world. God values life. We are to breathe life into his world, not take life from it. Euthanasia, or doctor-assisted suicide, is, is now becoming more popular and legal in certain places. And sometimes people, even Christians, can support this because they think that we as Christians should primarily be about ending suffering in the world. And that sounds good, but it's really, a, it's, it's a half-truth. And it's a half-truth that has been used to carry out great evil in the world. Because if people are primarily concerned about ending suffering, well, then they could justify murdering a child in the womb. They could justify it if the child is going to be born into a bad situation or if it's going to cause some suffering for the mom or the family. Let's just take life and end suffering. But then in that case, let's just take the lives of those who are really sick or disabled or the elderly or the mentally ill or orphans or the prisoners or unemployed or those that aren't contributing to society. Let's take the lives of those who are struggling with depression. I mean, to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. If we're primarily to be about ending suffering, let's just end these lives, call it a mercy killing because we've ended their suffering. You see where this goes wrong. Church, thou shall not suffer, did not make it into the Father's ten good words. We are not primarily to be about ending suffering. That's not what God is primarily about. We should certainly seek to alleviate people's suffering in the opportunities that God gives us, but not above valuing human life. We are to be life givers, not life takers. We are to breathe life into his world, not take life. And some of these topics and issues can get very complicated. If anyone would like to talk with me more about end-of-life care and things like this, I do believe there is a moral difference between terminating treatment and terminating life. There is a difference there. And in fact, in the next few months, I might be better equipped to help talk you and through some of these things and to think through some of these things um, as I am going to have an opportunity at Franklin College to teach a medical ethics class. Um, this is something that 
uh, we've been praying for opportunities at Franklin College. And so I wanted to share what's going to be going on uh, this fall with that. Uh, but we had been praying for opportunities at Franklin College, uh, opportunities, inroads to, to share Christ there, to, to proclaim truth there, to build relationships there. Um, and this spring, someone approached me and asked if I would be uh, open to teaching a medical ethics class. And um, it's something that initially I was really excited about, talked about it with the elders, talked about it with some of you, prayed about it. Um, and we decided that, that this, yes, would be an answer to prayer and a good opportunity for me to step in just for this fall semester. Um, and so what that will look like is it, it won't really change any of my responsibilities here. It's just going to be a few less hours a week that I'm committing to the church. And so the elders decided for the fall semester, they're going to cut back my hours and my pay a little bit um, so that I'm being responsible with, with what I'm doing here at the church, but also have a few more hours to commit to being at Franklin College. And so please be praying about that. Uh, this, again, this is, I think, a good opportunity for us uh, as a church to have more of an influence there at Franklin College. Uh, I believe this will hopefully make me a better teacher in the long run. Um, I'm praying that this will give me opportunities to proclaim the truth uh, to those at Franklin College. Um, and I believe it'll help me be able to pastor the church, help pastor you through some of these uh, decisions that have to be made um, that, that can be complex. And as medicine advances and technologies advance, these are things that we have to navigate together and apply God's wisdom and God's word to. And so I'm hoping I'll be better equipped to do that with you all as well. Uh, so please be praying for this, this, this fall, and that's what's going on, on with me. But how else are we taking life in this world? How else are we breaking this command? Well, how about when we are simply just careless with human life? Later in, in the law of God in Deuteronomy 22, instructions are given to the people of God in Deuteronomy 22.8, which says, when you build a new house, you shall make a, a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Now, what a parapet is, it's a, it's a short, if you're not familiar, it's a short fence or wall on the rooftop deck of a house because, you see, God values human life so much that we shouldn't be careless with it. So if people built a house with no guardrails on the roof and someone walked up there and walked off and died, they were guilty of that person's death because they were just being careless with human life. And so part of this command, God is instructing us, hey, don't be careless with human life. Now, most of you don't have rooftop decks, and if you do, I would like an invite over if there is at least a short guardrail up there, but that would be pretty cool. Most of us, though, we don't have rooftop decks, but how are we in our day careless with people's lives, including our own? Well, how about this? How about texting while we're driving? You probably didn't see me going there this morning, but we're going there. How about being just a distracted driver? Driving when you're too tired or too ill to really be driving. Trying to multitask in the car while you're driving. Listen, I'm concerned we are being careless with human life when we do that. We're not valuing human life like God does. 
How about when you're not securing or locking up firearms if you have those at the house? Do not be careless with human life. How about when we are careless with our own health and our own nutrition and our own exercise and our own sleep? How about when we put into our bodies any sort of medication or shot or supplement that someone in a white coat gives us without looking into it for ourselves and seeking wisdom and counsel about it? I can sadly attest to you that many, not all, but many who work in healthcare and pharmaceuticals, they are careless with human life. And they do not treasure it and value it like God does. Do not be careless with human life, including your own. Church, we have a God who values and loves human life because we have been made in his image, and we should as well. We should love and value and treasure human life. We were created to be life givers and to breathe life into his world. But we have all too often become life takers. We've become careless with life. How does this happen? How does this happen? And here's where we need to look to Jesus and allow him to reveal and redeem our hearts this morning. Because there is something in our heart that is just as capable of doing what Cain did to Abel. And until you accept that, you will always have murder issues. You will always be more of a life taker than a life giver. And Jesus said in Matthew 15, Matthew 15, verse 19, he says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Jesus taught us that, this, that the sinfulness of murder, the problem of taking life instead of giving life, it's not just an out there problem, it is an in here problem. It's coming from the heart. It's coming from the sin that exists in our heart. And then he deepens and transforms the sixth command by showing us that anger towards others is just as serious as murder. It's not the exact same, doesn't carry the exact same earthly consequences, but it is just as serious. In Matthew 5, 21, Jesus says, And you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You see, you break God's will for your life, not just when you shed innocent blood. It starts much earlier than that. It starts when you burn with anger against another human being. It starts as a young child when someone takes one of your toys and you burn with anger and you go and hit them and take it back. And now maybe as an adult, you've learned to not physically harm people every time you feel like it because of the consequences that would result. And so instead, you burn with anger and then you insult someone with your words. 
I mean, what are we doing when we are insulting someone with our words? We're trying to verbally hurt them and take life from them. We are speaking life-taking words instead of life-giving words. What happens then when we go and insult someone to others? We are murdering their reputation and their relationship with others. That's what we're trying to do. And so when we verbally attack someone, either to their face or behind their back, we are trying to diminish their dignity and worth as image bearers of God. We are devaluing them. We are treating them less as human. You see, this is what our anger is capable of. In our anger, we desire to hurt people. And if we can't hurt them with our hands, we're going to hurt them with our words. Murderous anger, it comes out of the heart. And it expresses itself differently depending on your personality and depending on your past. So let me ask you this. How does your anger play out in your life? Some of you are so enslaved to your anger, it, it, but it might look different for each, each one of us. Some, some of you are so enslaved to your anger that you take life with your words without even a second thought. You just insult, insult, insult. You just throw these all at a fellow image bearer of God who God breathed life into and you carelessly try to destroy them with your words. For others of you, sometimes your anger looks like being irritable and cranky and grouchy and testy and just the littlest thing could set you off. You're on edge. People have to walk on eggshells around you. They don't know what's going to just make you snap all of a sudden. For some of you, your anger is showing up as always being argumentative, always looking for an argument. You see, angry people are always looking for a fight because it's in a fight that gives them a chance to hurt someone else. They're looking for an argument because it gives them an opportunity to hurt someone else. And so when you see an opportunity to fight with your words, you're going to take it. For some of you, your anger is something that keeps getting recycled. And so it looks a lot like bitterness. You never actually throw it away. You put it, you put it in the yellow top container and it keeps getting recycled. And you're a bitter person. Maybe you don't think of yourself as an angry person, but really that's what bitterness is. It's anger that's recycled over and over and over. Maybe for some of you, your anger, it looks more like despair. I've heard it said that anger turned inward typically expresses itself in despair, discouragement. You've been so angry, you've turned it in on yourself, now you're just despairing. Maybe for you, anger looks more like a cold anger. You've been angry for so long, now you've just become indifferent to things, complacent with things. You want to withdraw from people, isolate yourself like Pastor Kevin was talking about, give people the silent treatment. For you, maybe you don't have a hot, violent anger. You're gonna, not going to snap on people, but your anger is more of a cold anger. just causes you to be indifferent, just not to care. And then there is this 
type of anger, and this is probably the worst and the most serious and the most deadly, there's something called self-righteous anger. And this is the anger that someone is enslaved to. Many church people are enslaved to this kind of anger. But they think they can justify it because Jesus flipped some tables over in the temple. When confronted with their anger, they deceive themselves into thinking that they are righteously angry. And therefore, they never allow Christ to reveal and redeem the anger and the murder problem in their own heart because, oh, they are righteously angry. But church, listen, righteous anger, truly righteous anger, is an anger directed towards evil. Righteous anger is an anger directed at Satan, sin, and death. Righteous anger works in conjunction with a love of God's holiness, not a hatred of people or the hurt they've caused you. Jesus was never angry about himself being harmed, hurt, or sinned against. That's not when we see Jesus being angry. Jesus flipped tables over in the temple to clear out room for the Gentiles to pray. Self-righteous anger, the anger that many church people have, it looks a lot like the anger of Jonah. And we preached through Jonah a ways back. You could go back and and listen to the sermon on Jonah chapter 4 about how Jonah was angry with God, but You know, in the the story of Jonah, Jonah preaches to the people of Nineveh. A miracle happens. They believe. They repent of their sin. They cry out for God's mercy and grace. Maybe one of the greatest revivals in human history happens. And how does Jonah respond in the face of this great widespread confession and repentance of sin? We see it in in Jonah 4 verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. You see, Jonah in his anger had become blind. Which anger does that to people. That's why there's a phrase uh, or a term, blind rage. It was in his blind rage that he sees people repenting and God relenting and he sees that as a great evil instead of what it actually was. And so he's now angry with God which is where some of you are at this morning. You're actually angry with God. Your anger has blinded you so much that you can't see how gracious and merciful God has been to you. Your anger has blinded you so much that you can't see just how much dignity and value and worth fellow human beings have as image bearers of God. Your anger has blinded you so much that you can't see who your real enemy actually is. And so what I fear this morning is that all the anger that is in the hearts of people in this room that the Spirit is maybe convicting us of right now, I'm afraid that you will try to avoid confessing and turning from it because you'll figure out some way to justify it. And so here are a couple of questions that I think can help us not fall into the deceptive trap of self-righteous anger and help differentiate righteous anger from self-righteous anger, all right? First question is, are you loving 
more than you are hating? Are you loving more than you are hating? And here's what I mean by that. Jesus loved his father's holiness more than he hated people's sin of turning the temple into a marketplace. There was a greater, deeper love for God's holiness that was driving it. God loves life more than he hates death. Now, why can I say that? Because sometimes he allows human death to be taken through lawful means in order to protect human life. Are you loving more than you are hating? We should love repentance more than we hate sin. We should love adoption more than we hate abortion. We should love caring for the elderly and disabled more than we hate euthanasia. We should love creating a culture of life more than we hate the culture of death that we live in. And so here's what I'm getting at. There is a way to be angry and not to sin. I I agree with you on that. There is a way to be angry and not to sin. There is a way to rightly hate what God hates. But because of sin that still exists in our hearts, this attempt at righteous anger very quickly turns into self-righteous anger if anger remains our primary fuel for life. Because it is not the hatred of evil that is supposed to control us and motivate us for the long haul. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, Paul writing to the Corinthians, he says, for the love of Christ controls us. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, church, it is the love of Christ that should control us, not our anger. It's the love of Christ that should control us, not our anger. And so why are you angry right now? Why are you angry? I'll tell you why I think you're angry. I think you're angry because you have lost your first love. You're angry because you lost the thing that was most important to you. That's why you're angry. You've lost your first love, but sadly, it wasn't Jesus. You see, our anger becomes sinful and hateful and murderous when Jesus is no longer the first love of our hearts, but something else is. When Jesus is your first love, you've got a chance at being righteously angry because the love of Christ is controlling you. But we become sinfully and self-righteously angry when our first love becomes ourselves and our egos and our pride and our self-esteem and our health and our feelings. When those are our first love. Now, when those get hurt, Now we are going to rage because someone just hurt our first love. The only problem is it wasn't Jesus. Why are you angry right now? Have your loves gotten out of order and now you're raging 
because the pride that you loved, your pride, you, the thing you loved the most got wounded and hurt. Now you're angry. The problem is not actually that we are hating too much. It's that we're loving Jesus too little. That's, that's really the primary problem. The answer is not that we need to be less angry. It's just that we need to love Jesus more. We need to have rightly ordered affections. When Jesus is our first love and when we don't abandon our first love, all these other lesser loves fall into place. Another question for us to consider to help us keep self, you know, help us keep us from going to self-righteous anger is the question that God asked Jonah in Jonah 4 verse 4. <clears throat> and the Lord said, "Do you do well to be angry?" That's what, that's what God comes to Jonah. He sees that he's angry, right? He says, "Do you do well to be angry?" And what God is doing here is he's uncovering Jonah's self-righteous anger. He's saying, "Hey Jonah, is anything good coming from your anger?" I'm pretty sure when Jesus became angry, good things came from that. But is anything good coming from your anger? Or is it just a, a, a road of destruction, a path of just people, just bodies laying down dead? When you become angry, you hurt people. And so church, do you do well to be angry? You see, anger is an emotion that we naturally experience when something is either not right in the world or in our hearts, and probably in most cases, both. But it's an emotion that is supposed to be experienced, and it's supposed to flow through us. It's supposed to be a short-burning fuel that fuels us to something good and something better. This is something that Jared and I were talking about earlier in the week, about how anger, it, it, it fuels us. And as we're talking, it just seems like anger needs to be more of the, the short-burning fuel that then catches something else on fire that burns longer and cleaner and warmer. But anger, unfortunately, becomes sinful when it gets stuck. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 9 says, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. You see, in the fool, anger gets stuck. It never moves into fueling something good. In the last couple of weeks, uh, my family, we went to, to Holiday World, and we had a good trip there. One of the things we did was we did the bumper cars. You guys know what bumper cars are like. Um, you know, in general, bumper cars, even though you're bumping into people, you know, there's, there's a general understood rule that traffic is flowing in one direction, right? And everything, you're bumping into people, but you're still flowing. But all it takes is one or two young kids who barely met the height requirement to get into a car and have no idea how this works or what's going on. And what happens is they end up clogging up the whole thing to where everyone is just now bumping into each other, ramming each other, but they're all stuck. There's this traffic jam that's just stuck and nothing's flowing through and nothing's moving. And you see, when anger gets stuck in our heart or in, in a church community like ours, when there's a couple people that get stuck in their anger, what happens is we all kind of get stuck and we all really just start hurting each other. When your anger gets lodged in your heart, you end up hurting all the people around you. 
I know you don't mean to, but that's what's happening. Anger should not lodge in our hearts. So let's use a, a, a real-life example. Many of you watched the, that movie, uh, The Sound of Freedom, uh, that's out right now, the movie bringing to light the horrific sin of, of sex trafficking. If you saw it, there is absolutely some degree of anger that you should experience when you watch a movie like that. Something is not right in the world. You should experience anger when you see that. The question is, how do we not allow that anger to just get lodged in our heart? I mean, should we stew in our anger over that for the rest of our lives? Or should that anger direct us to do something good? Should that anger direct us to something that we love? Should it cause us to go find a ministry that rescues and disciples those who have been a victim of sex trafficking? And should we fall in love with that ministry and love that and cheer it on and support it? Can we find a group that we love what they are doing and we can love those victims? And can it be a love that fuels us for the long run? Can we as a people love adoption and love serving Clarity Pregnancy Center? And as we go about in life, can we love breathing life into this world and valuing and treasuring and protecting the kids around us and the kids across the globe? But can we do that in a way that is motivated primarily by a love for them, by a love for human life? Let us not let anger just become lodged in our heart. And so to use, uh, think of this as like a, a campfire, okay? Uh, anger can be a good kindling, maybe. It's, it's, it's quick burning. It kind of gets the fire going. You become aware of something that's not right in the world or not right in your heart, and you become angry, and it starts the fire. But in order to have a good long-lasting fire that burns actual heat and provides a benefit to those sitting around it, you need some bigger logs to catch fire. Think of those bigger logs as being love. Anger catches the fire quick, but it should ultimately start burning a log for what we love. It should, we, we, we should be doing these things and breathing life into the world out of a love for God and a love for people and a love for human life. That is what is motivating us. That is what is controlling us. Anger will burn quickly. So some of you are trying to sit around a campfire and you just keep burning kindling. And you actually never feel warmth from it. You never experience the, the, the beauty and the glory of a fire. And you're exhausted because every few minutes you're having to add fuel to the fire. You, you can't even get motivated to live life until you look at the news and get fired up again. Now you're ready to go. It's just kindling. It's kindling. It's kindling. We, we live in a, in, a, in, a, in a society that is actually making money off of us just stirring up our anger. And it's just feeding kindling into our hearts, trying to make us motivated to do things out of anger and out of fear. And I'm telling you, as the people of God, there is a right place for anger. It's when we first experience something that's not right in the world or in our hearts, but then that should catch fire something that is going to burn longer and, and last longer and cleaner, and it needs to catch our hearts on fire for a love for God and a love for people. The love of Christ is what must then control us. And so it is, it's, it is right to hate murder, 
It is right to be angry about Satan's sin and death and the havoc that they are wreaking on God's world. But church, don't let anger get lodged in your heart. That anger should fuel you to do something good and into something that God loves. The love of Christ and loving life like he loves life is what will sustain you till the end. Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? Have you abandoned your first love? Some of you, your hearts, and the, and the anger that is coming from your hearts, it looks a lot more like Cain than it does Christ. Cain, the son of Adam, when anger rose up in him, he took life. But Christ the Son of God, came and when righteous anger rose up in him, he gave his life for you and me. We look to Cain and we see the capabilities of our sin, but then we look to Christ and we see the conqueror of our sin. Cain hated his brother and scoffed at the idea that he should be his brother's keeper. Oh, but church, see the glory of Christ. Christ is your true and better brother's keeper who knew where we were who knew the murder that was in our hearts, who came and allowed himself to be murdered for murderers like you and me. May we see this morning that Christ came to die for, to forgive, to conquer, and to heal the anger and the murder that still exists in our hearts. The love of Christ is the only thing powerful enough to free us from the anger that has enslaved us. And so why are you angry? What's going on in your heart? What has replaced Jesus as your first love? Look to him. Turn your eyes to him and see his life-giving love for you. May you see the love of Christ on the cross. And may that be what controls you, both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray.